0: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I'm a longtime fan of a bunch of different game shows. Now, most I just kind of casually watch. You see the family feud, and it's fun. Uh, sometimes there's a host that has a great demeanor, and you think, how would you answer to the questions that come up on the survey? And you see where your answers rank on what comes up on the survey. survey. I absolutely love watching Jeopardy! On a daily basis, mostly because I'm trying to figure out if I know the answer or not. That was the same appeal behind who wants to be a millionaire. I was a big fan of that show back in the day. But there was something so special about the price is right for me growing up particularly when it was hosted by Bob Barker. Now, I've gotten to interview Bob Barker a number of times and uh, talked to him about what made that show so special and what made that show unique among game shows. I thought I was a fan of The Price is Right. I'd watch it if I was ever homesick or something or if somebody had it on at the office. The gentleman that you're about to meet took fandom of The Price is Right to a whole new level. A couple of you might have heard me a couple of months ago talking about a documentary which is a few years old now, but I just caught it and it was just terrific. It's called Perfect bid the contestant who knew too much and it's a fascinating story the story that's told in the documentary is just fascinating we're going to tell you not every aspect of it because i still want you to see the documentary and not have all the key aspects of the story ruined for you but we're going to tell you some key aspects of it but what makes the documentary so great is hearing from the subject of the documentary himself because not only is he someone that's incredibly talented, but he's someone that happens to be a very gifted storyteller, and to say he's an enthusiastic fan of this particular game show would be a dramatic understatement. gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome, to the other side of midnight, Ted Slauson, an elementary school math teacher and a Price is Right expert and the star of the documentary Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much. Ted, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I feel like I know you already.
1: Thank you, Frank. Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, before we get into your story and your history with The Price is Right, how, what was your review of the documentary uh, Perfect Bid? Did you find it to be accurate? Did you find it to be mostly accurate? Did you find it to be slanted? Obviously, you're the key component, of that, the common thread that runs throughout the whole documentary. What was your review in terms of enjoyment and in terms of accuracy?
1: It's very, very well done. Um, CJ wanted to tell my side of the story, mostly because the person of interest uh, with the perfect showcase bid kind of got a lot of publicity and went out and said he had come up with the bid on his own, which CJ kind of set out to disprove by showing my story. Um, i i still i i don 't watch it a lot I catch it you know once in a while but i it cracks me up I still find things in that documentary i didn 't notice that he put in there and Kind of the way he uh, wove the whole story together, I think, was just amazing.
0: I completely agree. And you're talking about C.J. Wallace, the uh, director of Perfect Bid. And by the way, if people want to watch this, it's available on Netflix. It's only 72 minutes. It's a it's a quick watch, and it's a fun watch. And it has to do um, – the incident that you alluded to was a contestant who bid perfectly on a showcase in 2008. And uh, we'll get back to that in just a moment. When did you first become a fan of The Price is Right, Ted?
1: I was, I think, uh, seven or eight years old. It was the very early 70s. The show was probably in its first or second season. Um, I had seen commercials. I hadn't really thought it looked that interesting. But the way I tell it in in the documentary is that I was the youngest of six kids. There was only one TV in the house. We were all home from school. My brothers and sisters kind of decided what we were going to watch. And so it was kind of forced upon me. And I really enjoyed the show so much. It was only 30 minutes back then. But just that one show, I liked it so much that it kind of became uh, something I wanted to watch whenever I had the chance.
0: In your opinion, what makes this game show, The Price is Right, different from other game shows in terms of its appeal?
1: Well, I think because it's one of those where anyone can play along. Um, you know if they have prices of things that people are familiar with I think the fact that they the pricing games are different every day and you don't see the same set of games even in within a week you don't see the same game repeated and that started even back i think as early as the 80s so there's that variety aspect but parts of the show are also the same every day and there's that competitive nature you know who's who can bid the closest without going over who knows the strategies for the games who's going to bid closer on their showcase at the end
0: you you talk about how it's a game that people can watch it play at home that's certainly true but in your heyday of Price is Right fandom you took playing at home to a whole new level didn't you what did you do
1: yeah my, <laughs> my brother was also kind of a fan of the show in the early days he I think was the first one who noticed that you know that that TV was on a couple of days ago, and it was 9:50 and then, and it was 9:50 this time. They used some of the same stuff, so I started kind of keeping track of the prizes and prices. And this was, you know, years before I was even eligible to be a contestant on the show. I never even knew if the show would last long enough for me to be a contestant. Um, so I would keep track of the prizes and the prices, and would keep just kind of written lists because this was really before computers were. Um, on the market so So, around what um, year are
0: we talking here 78
1: 79 um probably the mid mid to late 70s yeah
0: and uh, i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt so you you keep a written list of all of the prizes and what they would go for on the show but then that evolved to something a little bit more elaborate didn't it
1: yes so my uh My parents got me a Texas Instruments home computer when I was a senior in high school. Uh, It was my biggie Christmas gift that year. And I wasn't quite sure what it was for because I hadn't really expressed an interest in having a computer, but my dad was like, well, I thought you could use that to inventory my train collection, which is kind of a running joke because it's like, well, gee, thanks for that gift with the strings attached. (laughs) So I learned how to program in BASIC using that computer, and I programmed individual games from the show so I would kind of practice with some of the actual prizes on the show But it was just like a game here and a game there. And the car games, it would just kind of give me a random price, and I'd just see if I could guess it. So those didn't really help. But a few years later, and this was now, I think we're talking 1990. I guess I should back up a little bit. In the mid-'80s, I got a personal computer, then started using like an actual database to store all the prizes and the prices and all the information Around 1990 is when I realized that I should really be keeping track of everything on the show. I was really only writing things down and recording things that where they showed the price of something. And it dawned on me because I'd I'd had an incident, I think it was 1984, um, where I hit a showcase on the nose at home. It was a shock to me because I wasn't expecting to be on the nose. But what, what I realized later is that the reason I got it was because I knew three of the prices and the fourth one, I just happened to guess it on the nose. It was carpeting. And someone had once told me carpeting was $20 a square yard or $10 a square yard. And when I used that rule, it gave me this perfect bid. And so it dawned on me that when I know some of the prices in the showcases, if I get to the point where there's only one left that I don't know, I can subtract out all those prices from the total and get that missing price. And that's how I started getting prices of trailers and boats and all these expensive things that were usually only ever shown in the showcases. The- and in 1990, um, Game Tech put out this Prices Right computer game. I was so excited to get it. I waited and waited and waited for weeks for it to arrive. And when it arrived, I was sadly disappointed at the quality of the game. Um, There are just so many things wrong with it. It's become like its own urban legend. So I decided I was going to write my own prices Right program, and I wrote it in GW Basic using the actual prizes and prices from the show. So that was a way for me to start um, kind of practicing with the prices instead of just reading them off of lists and trying to put my thumb over the price and guess the price. This was a way to actually get uh, more practice in learning the prices.
0: Then when was the first time you ended up in the audience of the Prices Right?
1: First time I went was in, it was uh, Memorial Day. It was actually the day after Memorial Day in 1984. Uh, my friend Dee, who I'd known, I've known her since I was a kid, we went on a trip to Los Angeles. We decided, well, I decided... <laughs> That I wanted to see the prices right because I was 18 finally and I wanted, you know, I'd waited all these years. And so that was the first time. And then it became kind of a yearly thing um, for a few years. And then I started going on my own. I would always go with like a friend um, or my sister went a few times with me. But it got to the point where I started just going on my own when I had time.
0: How many times were you in the audience of the show before you ended up as a contestant yourself?
1: my 24th time in the audience was the time I was chosen as a contestant
0: 24th time so uh if yeah. people think that uh they can just show up and there's a good chance that they're going to be uh selected <laughs> to be on the show the the more likely scenario is you're going to have to go a couple of dozen times
1: before you get selected right, right. Well, back when the audience was that big definitely
0: when uh you would go just as a uh as a uh, audience watcher before you got to be on the show itself I'm wondering if you can describe uh, Bob Barker and kind of his interaction with the audience offstage anything that uh, people might not see who were just watching it on television
1: so Bob knew obviously he knew how to um, handle contestants how to bring the best out of them how to make things fun he also knew how he knew the importance of keeping the audience interested and so during the commercial breaks, he would talk to the audience. He would ask if people had questions. Um, some of his stuff, if you saw, if you were there multiple tapings, you would see kind of the same jokes, which was funny. They're still funny, sure. you know, even when you see them a few times. But um, he, also, he always knew how to kind of keep the audience up. And the way they run that show, at least the way they ran it back then, they would try to do it as if it were live to tape. And so... The lights would go down after the first game was won or lost. It would seem like it was just a few seconds and the lights would come back up and they'd be ready to go on. And it was amazing to think of all the stuff they were moving around backstage and setting up on the stage in this record amount of time to keep the show running. And it wasn't, it was unusual if you were, if it took more than an hour to take a show. It almost always took about an hour to get through the whole taping.
0: You finally end up on the show, uh, but uh, you would befriend a lot of people in the audience that you happen to be sitting next to or standing in line next to uh, while you were waiting to get in. And you had no hesitancy given your expertise and uh, spending a lot of time kind of memorizing the prices of various items. You had no hesitancy helping out some of the contestants who were on the show, right?
1: That is correct. And I always felt like, you know, I've put all this time into being prepared. If I'm not going to get picked, I may as well at least help anyone who is down there. And, you know, and they, a lot of times people don't necessarily know who to listen to. Because everyone's um,
0: shouting and that whole thing.
1: Right. And Rod Rodding used to say in, as part of his warm-up, It could be, you know, he'd ask the audience, will you all help uh, the contestants? And everyone yells yes. And he says, how easy could it or how much easier could it be? Just pick out the one out of 300 screaming voices and you'll win in contestants row.
0: How many people would you say you helped out that actually you were shouting the answers to and uh, they actually listened to you? How many people? Ballpark.
1: Oh. Wow. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's probably at least. I would say between 15 and 20 ballpark.
0: Wow. Wow. Now, of all those folks, some um, gave you a little bit of a credit on the show, gave you a little shout out or uh, would give you a high five as they were uh, running out of the audience or something along those lines. Did anybody who you helped win a nice prize, did anyone anyone ever express a great deal of gratitude in terms of wanting to take you to dinner or give you a little (laughs) cash gratuity or something along those lines?
1: So of course the the funny story that's in the documentary is the day that um, I yelled out the price of the first item up for bids and it happened to be before anyone else said anything and it, even before Bob Barker had a chance to explain to the contestants what they were supposed to do and so he you know pointed me out and said that you know I had no chance of winning the prize but then when he pulled the price tag out of the sleeve and realized I was on the nose he had me stand up and. One of the contestants on that episode, her name was Susan. She won the third item up for bids with a perfect bid, which she got for me. And then Bob made a whole running joke about how I'd won a little prize on the Price is Right, and we were going to have this dinner date. Dinner date never happened, but uh, never say never. It's 2023. You never know. It happened this year. Um, You laugh. Just wait. It could be in the works. You never know. Um, And... There was a contestant. This was in 2003. My uh, family, 10 people from my family, myself included, went to a taping. Um, We were having a whole family uh, kind of reunion. Uh, We were about to get on a cruise. But 10 of us went to the show. My dad got picked uh, next to last contestant. Saddest story of all, I could not get him out of contestants row. I only had two chances. They brought out something I had never seen, and then they brought out a barbecue. The price had gone up, and I was thinking of a different barbecue. Mm. But a different contestant on that show, who we'd met, because she was there, she was uh, third or fourth in line, and we were our group started at number five and went through number fourteen because we got there fairly early. She was an Eskimo from Alaska. And she got up on stage and played the game on the spot, which they don't, that game didn't last a whole long time, but I helped her win the car. After the show, she wanted to give me a $50 bill. And I told her, I was like, no, no, I was like, no, you need to keep that. You're going to have to pay taxes. And no, I don't. And she tried to give it to my brother and my brother's like, oh no, I'm not involved in this. And then she tried to give it to my sister. And then somewhere in there, I Someone called my name and I got distracted, and her name was Irene. She shoved the the $50 bill in my pocket and turned around and ran. (laughs) I was just like, I didn't want the $50. But I think I spent it in the casino on the cruise or something. I don't remember.
0: Very nice. It's a shame you couldn't help out your dad, but I guess it's like the cobbler's children who go without shoes, right? Uh, Talking with uh, Ted Slauson, if you are interested in his story or The Price is Right, or even if you're not interested in The Price is Right, but uh, you want to hear a fascinating story of someone who spends a great deal of time developing expertise in something and channels it in what I would argue is a productive manner, see the document. Perfect Bib, the contestant who knew too much. It is on uh, Netflix. Now, you were very public about uh, the fondness that you had for one particular Price is Right model, (laughs) Holly, weren't you?
1: Yes. um, She was always my favorite growing up. She came on the show, I think, around uh, 77, size around 11. Um, She always, she tried her best to be glamorous she said she always said janice pennington was kind of her role model she wanted to be glamorous like janice but if something was going to happen it was going to happen to her and there are just a string of bloopers with holly and things and she always made it funny and then you know bob would always pick on her and say things you know about how um, clumsy or whatever she was but uh so i had made a shirt and i have to admit i've seen a show that was done in the early 80s and i this may have been where we got the idea because a guy had a shirt similar to mine it said i think it says i'm here to see holly not bob or something Um, but mine actually said i'm here to kiss holly and then it said sorry bob on the back (laughs) and i wore it to the first taping because that was why i got it my sister actually went with me and helped me get it done Wore it to the first taping. The producer was completely unimpressed with me. Um, I was kind of stumbling my way through my little short interview, trying to explain what I, you know, that I was a college student. After that, I would take the shirt with me every time. But I would never wear it. I'd always wear some other shirt. The week that I, the show that I got picked, I had actually been to a taping on Monday and a taping on Tuesday and and stayed for that third day of tapings on Wednesday. And I thought, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I've been here two days already. I'm just gonna wear the shirt and see what happens. So I put I went you know, you can have this little break in the processing where if you or if you're close by, if your hotel's close by, you can go and shower and change and that's usually what I would do put the shirt on, come back to the CBS lot, and people are looking and pointing and whispering about my shirt. I thought, well, that's a good sign. Then I realized I've got to say something to the producer. I've got to make this stand out because, you know, there's no point in wearing the shirt if, you know, I don't have something to say about it, I guess. So I kind of practiced in my head what I wanted to say. And when it came time to me, for me to You know, talk about myself. Said to Phil Wayne, who was the producer at the time, who chose the contestants, I said, You know, I'm still on my, I'm still a middle school math teacher and I'm still on my longest vacation ever. And I said, As far as today goes, forget the refrigerator, forget the new car. This is why I'm here. And I pointed at my shirt. (laughs) And I did not expect that he would start laughing. And he started laughing. And I didn't know how to take it. It kind of, I froze for about a half second because I thought, is laughter good or is laughter bad? Like, what does this mean? And I think I finished. I don't remember what I said after that. And he was still kind of chuckling, and he said, okay. And he pointed at me and went on to the next person. And I don't know if that point was his secret signal that day to his assistant that I that she should be writing down all my details so they could pick me. Um, but, yes, that shirt, I think, helped get me on the show I did actually get to kiss Holly. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you. (laughs) tell that part
0: now. No, believe but... me, if uh, if I got to kiss Holly, I'd be I'd be renting billboards <laughs> that uh, that advertise that fact. So, uh, you mentioned to the fact that you finally got on the show, and at this point, it seems like uh, Bob, ha- from the two dozen times that you've been there, he's recognized you a couple of times. Uh, maybe Holly and the others have uh, recognized you a few times. And when you finally get on the show, I think most people would assume that you just do gangbusters because you've spent so many years memorizing the <laughs> The prices to everything. How'd you do when you were on the show?
1: So there is a little bit of luck involved, especially with the wheel. There are. There's always that possibility that a price might change. Um, this was before I started using pictures from the show in my database. So a lot of times I had to rely on kind of a little description of the prizes. The first item up for bids was a set of outdoor furniture. It was uh, made by Mallon and there were three different sets of outdoor furniture that I had in my database at the time. So I picked one of the prices. I think I picked the lowest of the three, but it was not that price. It was a different set. And so somebody else won the first item up for bids. That maybe uh, worked out fine for me because the person ended up playing for a trip, and trip prices were kind of always variable. You never quite knew what those were going to be. Um, but the second item up for bids was a recliner that I did know the price of, and I was the second bidder. So when it came time for me to bid, I bid five ninety nine. When everyone had their bids in, the perfect bid bell went off, and Bob read the price, and it was five ninety nine. So when, <laughs> when I went up on stage, he poked fun at me a little bit by saying that you know, in the, all the twenty four times I'd been at the show, I'd seen the recliner before, and I was trying to be modest so I said I think so and he goes you know so and everyone just started laughing um, but then I played the punch board which also has an element of luck and I kind of knew that was the game I was going to be playing because they have uh, cue cards and things on the stage and I in my head I thought well it's for money i mean you can you, money's always a wonderful prize especially when it's someone's giving it to you sure So, uh, you know, if I'd waited another game, I might have been able to play Lucky 7 and win like a $9,600 car, but um, I don't really have any regrets about playing Punchboard. But um, Holly Holly was a model who was displaying the, the little small prizes that you bid on or that you say higher or lower. And when she saw my shirt, she started laughing. Bob realized, oh, I can make a moment out of this. So he says, well, there's Holly. Go ahead and give her a kiss. And so he kind of pushed me over, and Holly came over. And we met in the middle, and she gave me a peck on the cheek and a hug. And then as we were parting, I started to say something to her, and she grabbed my face and planted a kiss right on my lips, which just <laughs> drives everyone crazy. When I used to show that on the last day of school, my students would always just, you know, lose it because it was so funny
0: uh, no uh, absolutely so in terms of the prize that yourself obviously you want that you won when you were a contestant obviously you win the recliner and then how much did you come away with having played punch bowl?
1: the first hole that i punched was a thousand dollars and i had a hunch that if i gave a thousand back you know, trying to get five thousand or ten thousand, that it would be the biggest mistake of my life. So I decided to keep it. It turned out to be the right decision because the amounts just went downhill from there. Um, so I won a thousand on the punch board. I won a hundred for the perfect bid. I won the five hundred ninety-nine dollar recliner, and I won uh, the four prizes in punch board. So. Total that I won was $1,962. Well, hey,
0: that's uh, not too bad. But uh, for folks wondering why doesn't uh, Rain Man go on the prices right all the time (laughs) and just win all the prizes, the answer is because that even if you know a lot of the prices of what, what everything goes for, there's still an element of luck to it. Right. Right. Uh, So obviously, in 2008, uh, there is something that had been unprecedented. Now, Drew Carey is hosting the show and there's a contestant by the name of uh, Terry Nice or Terry Nice. And uh, he bids perfectly on the showcase back in 2008. And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories about what happened. You can see Drew Carey on the show itself saying this is never going to air because he assumed there was some shenanigans going on there. Um, in terms of that guy that did make that perfect bid on the showcase, which I think had heretofore not happened before, what involvement did you have?
1: Total involvement. <laughs> so, Carey was um, the... Fourth person to show up for the line in the morning. It was super early. The person who was third wanted to be at a certain place in the line because he knew that person, like that number gets the seat right behind contestants row, and that's where he wanted to be. So he kept letting people go ahead of him. Carrie showed up about an hour after I was there. Then more more, more and more people were showing up. And Terry got on the phone and called his wife, who was still at their hotel. And he said, yeah, you better get over here. It's start, they're starting to get a lot of people. And he hung up, and I said, I hope you don't think I was eavesdropping. I said, but my sister would kill me if I didn't tell you that this isn't the greatest neighborhood, and you really should go over and, bring, and walk over with your wife. And he said, oh, and I said, I'm happy to hold your place. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah, just it's fine. And so he went over. They were back in just a few minutes, and his wife was obviously a big fan of the show. She was one of the – she may be the only person in – at this point, this is my 36th taping, I think. She was maybe the only person in all those tapings who ever quoted prices, and I was impressed that she was hitting everything on the nose. So she was, knew her stuff? Grocery it was grocery items. She knew – she said, you know, the Jelly Bellies are $1.49. And uh, I think it was, the, I can't remember the other two, but she named off three items and their prices. And they were all in, it's in the bag at the taping we went to later that day. And they were, she was right on all three of them. So that was pretty impressive for me. My opinion, based on what I saw of Terry and how he was interacting, because the, the couple ahead of me in line, And Linda and Terry, the five of us kind of chatted a lot while we were waiting to get in. I got the impression that Linda watched the show and that the couple ahead of me watched the show. But Terry just seemed to kind of be looking at each of us as we were talking and things were kind of registering, but he wasn't participating. He wasn't saying, oh, yeah, I remember that time when blah, blah, blah happened. Like there was like nothing. So we finally, you know, we go through all the processing and all that stuff and We get into the studio, and Terry was the second contestant called. So I'm right away thinking, well, I'm probably not going to get picked because he's sitting right next to me, and they don't usually pick people who sit right next to each other. But how often, you know, I've been talking with them all day, I can help him win something. The first item up for bids, he didn't get it because it was a, well, he wasn't paying attention to Linda. He didn't look at Linda or me, and the price that I had it at, was actually wrong. It had gone up like $100, which was not unusual that a price would change at some point. Um, Second item up for bids was a camera that I didn't have in my database, so I had no clue. But the third item up for bids was the Big Green Egg Barbecue, and it had been on the show for several seasons. It had been $900 for a long, long time. That's the one I thought my dad was bidding on in my head. But anyway, another story for another day. But it had gone up to eleven $1, seventy-five the last time it had been on the show earlier the previous season, like in April, March, somewhere in there. So I told Terry eleven $1, seventy-five. He gets it on the nose. He gets the five hundred dollars bonus. But then I steered him wrong in his pricing game because the prizes two exercise cycles somehow I thought it was one exercise cycle and a computer, and the the game was switched. So he had to either keep the prices where they were or switch them. I thought because of the way the prices look to me, that they should be switched. Turns out I was wrong. And everyone in the audience told him to keep them, but he switched them and he ended up losing. Uh, but he spun 90 cents on the wheel, so he went to the showcase. So that's how he got to the showcase. Um, he was the runner-up because the top winner was a woman who I helped win a car and went away. <laughs> Uh, with one chance, she did it on one uh, on her first turn, which is very unusual. And so at this point I think they already know something about the people on the show. Um, so the first showcase is a has a karaoke machine, which I know is a1,000 dollars. It was um, one that I knew because it kept tripping me up when I was running my little guessing program that I had written. That one would come up, and I would think, I don't know the price of this. And it was about the 17th time I'm like, it's a thousand dollars. How hard is this to memorize? It's a thousand, and it had this big tall tower. So I thought I'm going to remember that big tall tower as a one, and that's going to help me remember the one thousand. Second prize was a pool table, which had been twenty eight hundred dollars for a while, and the third prize was the 17 foot high low travel trailer. And I already talked about how. I was able to start deducing prices of trailers and boats and all those big prizes that were in the showcases. So I knew the trailer was $19,943. And so I added it up in my head, Sharon, the top winners trying to decide if she's going to keep the showcase. I told Linda, the price is 23,743. Sharon passes the showcase to Terry. I did a quick double check on my addition to make sure I didn't mess something up because this is not the time you want to mess something up. I said to Linda, 23743 Is that what I said before? And she said, yes. So we started signaling that bid to Terry. And then something in my head said, this isn't going to go over so great if he's on the nose. So I thought, maybe we'll just do 23500 and he'll still get both showcases. So I started to change my bid that I was signaling And he was already mouthing the bid that Linda was signaling, so that's when he said $23,743. And things started happening on the stage as soon as that bid was lit up. The producer walked over and was like communicating with some other staff members. They did the second showcase, which was four trips, and Sharon placed her bid, and they went to commercial, and it was like the show just (laughs) kind of came to a grinding halt, and usually that last segment that last commercial break is very very short they remind you okay we're going to show you the prices and someone's going to win someone's going to lose we're going to walk over and see their prizes and we're going to they're going to have the cameras on you so make sure you're applauding and smiling and it was 15 to 20 minutes in my estimation although I've heard other estimates as high as 45 minutes I don't think it was that long until they finally picked up and finished the taping and Apparently, what was happening is standards and practices was brought in, and they were trying to figure out was, you know, did something. um, Was there some
0: cheating going on?
1: Right, right. Did somebody cheat? They had a camera at one point trained right on me, and then it was trained on Linda. I don't remember which order, but uh, it was pretty obvious to me because we were right in the front row, and this camera was right in front of us on stage staring at us. And so I figured, okay, well, they're doing that to, I don't know, to k- keep a record of our faces or something. But uh, they finally started the taping back up and, you know, Terry read Sharon's bid or Sharon's showcase price. She was less than $500 away, which on any other day is <laughs> a awesome bid. Um, and then he walked over to Terry and he's just kind of like chuckling and, and muttering. <laughs> he reads the price, total deadpan. It's right on the nose. The display changes to a zero, and Drew's just like, you got it right on the nose. You win both showcases So with no emotion. And so, you know, the bells are going off. The audience is like, what? <laughs> like The audience was freaked out.
0: I would think not only because of the accuracy, but because of Drew Carey's lack of response <laughs> there, which is an indication that something is is wrong. So uh, I do want people to watch the documentary and uh, get a, an idea of the full, full out, uh, fallout. It's called The Perfect Bid, and we're just about out of time anyway, Ted. But let me ask you, though, why do you think... Look, Terry ends up winning the prize, and he's celebrated as this uh, incredible savant, as the winner. Why do you think he didn't give you any credit when it's clear that the answer that you gave him, which he parroted was responsible for him getting the perfect showcase.
1: You know, I, I, I think probably he thought he would maybe get some kind of notoriety or become famous in game show circles. I'm really not sure what his motivation was. We chatted by email a few times after the taping. And then the next thing I was hearing was him Doing interviews, saying, "Oh yeah, I came up with that bid all by myself." But and,
0: it, when you guys would chat via email, was he at least um, appreciative of the role that you played in in his perfect bid?
1: So the emails are old, so old that I don't have access to them anymore. But what I remember was they were very kind of guarded, like kind of you know he didn't really give me credit in the, even in the emails uh, for any kind of help. That was the other time where someone gave me money. His wife gave me. A wad of twenty dollar bills after the show, and I said, "I know you guys need this." And she goes, "No, no, we want you to have this." And it was very odd. And I finally just said, "Okay, fine." Yeah, I, I mean, I guess he just thought there would be, you know, if he, or maybe the other thing that some people have thought is that maybe he thought if it came out that someone helped him, he would lose all his prizes. I see. And it's like no. Yeah. I
0: don't think. <laughs> I, I, and lastly, Ted, um, you you alluded to the fact that you suspected that it would be a real problem if you gave him the exact number, which you subsequently did, and uh, he gave that number, and that's why you tried to change the prize slightly. Why? Why were you concerned that him bidding the exact perfect amount on the showcase would cause a problem?
1: I'm not sure. I just. I think I thought you know if this were something if the bid if i know the price and i'm the one in the showcase making the bid it's one thing but mm-hmm. if i'm down here helping and i give someone a bit on the nose that may look to me that i thought maybe that would look more suspicious but you know they've always let people help except for when you're playing the clock game they let the audience help and um you know as they have themselves said well it was our own fault for using the same prizes over and over it's like How many people have done this in the course of the 50-year history of the show? One. Right. right. One time.
0: Right. Uh, So um, now they have amended how they handle this to avoid a similar situation in the future, right?
1: From my understanding, because I don't really watch the show, but um, they have a lot of trips now in the showcases. I think it's probably unusual that there's a showcase without a trip because it's, you know, almost impossible to price those. And then they started adding, like, private jets and all sorts of weird things to the trips that people wouldn't necessarily know how to price. They, for a while, during Season 37, which is when this perfect bid happened, they started bringing in a lot more prizes. And I was tracking them at this point because they had changed the eligibility rules. I was hoping to get back on the show, but it became a chore to keep up with all the prizes and prices because they were bring so many new things in on every show. Mm. And it just and it got to the point where it was like, I'm not enjoying this anymore. And I wasn't really enjoying watching the show. Um, because, you know, the hosting style is so different now than it was with
0: Bob. Right. Yeah, you know, different strokes for different folks. I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat. Hey, uh, Ted, it's a fascinating story. I want to encourage everybody to see the documentary Perfect Bid. It's available on Netflix, probably some other platforms as well. I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, next time you become an expert in a game show, please let me know which it is so I can make sure I'm in the audience at the same time.
1: All right. Will do. Thank you, Frank.
0: Thank you. Ted Slauson, the documentary, is a a perfect bid. The contestant who knew too much. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of midnight. Midnight.